There are probably some of you here this morning, I, I know there are some of you here this morning who, I would have been like you are uh, 20 years ago. You're sitting in here and, and you see all these people getting cranked up um, and just kind of getting a little loony and, and uh, real excited and hooping and hollering and having a good time and kind of getting uncontrollable and whatnot. And it's got to seem to you kind of like what it would seem like to a person who went to a World Series baseball game but couldn't see any of the teams playing. And all you know is the response of the crowd, but you don't see what they're responding to. You see them stand up and wave their hankies and, and do a you know, tomahawk thing or something. And you're, probably, you're looking around saying, what is going on here? All you see is the reaction to the event. You don't see the event. And it's got to seem pretty strange. And, and I don't blame you for thinking it looks a little strange. One way I decide I'd try to get you to understand kind of what we're about is, is simply this. Think about how excited you get when you go to World Series and quadruple that, and you got a little idea of, of what it's like uh, to feel the, the love of God, the unbelievable love, and to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and to know that as a reality, and to live in that reality. What I want to do this morning is, is simply this. It's not really a sermon so much as it is a teaching time. And I don't see Christmas and Easter as really being for believers. Um, you know, we don't make a whole lot about the, the birth and resurrection of Christ on Christmas and Easter because hopefully it's something you live in every day of your life. Uh, it, it's a reality there, yet you're married to, to the Lord. I mean, you don't want... If your marriage is seasonal, you're in trouble. <laughs> and, and if your Christianity is seasonal, well, then you've you got to do some rethinking about what it is you're believing in. We celebrate the resurrection every day of our life. But this is a good time for us to, to ask this question. And here I'm, in particular, talking to those who maybe are not sure that Jesus rose from the dead. Maybe those who are quite sure he didn't rise from the dead. Or maybe believers who simply need to re-examine the foundation of their faith. What you've got to know about me is that faith has never been an easy thing for me. Some people just can believe it's no problem. They're just so sure and they go on. There are days when I'm really, really, really sure and there are days when I wonder. And, and faith has just never been a natural thing for me. I'm one of these types of people where it's like it's got to be proven. I've got to investigate it. And so at a number of points in my life, I've had to go back to the basics and start all over and ask the question, why do I believe in God? Why do I believe in Jesus? Why do I think he rose from the dead? And look at the evidence for the whole thing. Begin to look at the whole thing. It's an odd belief when you think about it. There's a, it seems to me a very normal, natural question to ask. Why think that Jesus rose from the dead? That's not a dumb question. That's not an ungodly question. That's a normal question. If I told you my dad rose from the dead or my uncle rose from the dead, you'd be justified in saying, what? Uh, give me proof. But then we expect people just to believe us when we say, well, Jesus rose from the dead. And, and it's like, well, how do you know? Well, the Bible says so. Well, <laughs> that's persuasive. I don't believe in the Bible. And so sometimes it's good to go back and look at the historical reasons why you believe in Jesus Christ. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. There's a lot of voices out there today. Time and Newsweek and U.S. News and World Report just came out with three different articles on the historical Jesus. And there's a lot of people out there, a lot of scholars, who are saying things like this. John Dominic Crossan, one of the most outspoken of all the scholars, he says that Jesus not only didn't rise from the dead, he never was even buried. His body was, he was crucified, a common criminal, he was thrown into a shallow grave, and his body was devoured by wild beasts. And the disciples were too embarrassed to say that the carcass of their master was eaten so they made up the story about the resurrection how he knows all that I don't know, well I do know and it's not very persuasive so what I want to do this morning is this 
kind of an apologetic time. I, I, I want to I wanna share with you, whether you're a believer here or a non-believer, why I have come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ did, in fact, rise from the dead. In fact, I've come to the conclusion, and I've looked at this quite a bit, that of all the events in ancient history, this event, I believe, has gotten more evidence for it than any other single event you can point to. And I want to share with you why I hold that conviction. In my view, there is no more important question than this one. So I want to kind of take some time and look at the reasons for it. I can't go into it as thoroughly as I'd like, and I hope I'm not sounding self-promoting here, but if you want to investigate this more thoroughly, I, I've, I have two books out in the hall that I've, I've uh, uh, written more extensively on it. So if it, if, it, if it piques your interest, go and check it out. But this morning I want to kind of just give an overview. I want to give the basic reasons, the brass tacks reasons, why I've come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ in fa- did in fact rise from the dead. And um, why I am got to the point where I just am willing to base my entire existence on this. To wager everything on this reality. It's the most important question you can have. If the resurrection is not true, Jesus Christ is a hoax. If the resurrection is true, we've got a big, 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 big decision to make here. What do you make of this person? Let me take as my starting text, 1 Corinthians 15. It's in your bulletin, or you can turn to it in your Bibles if you want. This is the Apostle Paul. Writing to the church at Corinth. Now, for, for a moment here, for the next 25 minutes, pretend like you don't have a Bible. Pretend like there is no Bible. Because a lot of times people, just because a, a, a text is in the Bible, they, they think that it can't be true. I want to treat the Gospels, and I want to treat Paul's letter not as canonical texts. I want to treat them just as historical documents. Treat them the way you treat any documents in, in history. I want to look at them from that perspective. The letter to the Corinthians was a letter written by this man named the Apostle Paul approximately 15 to 20 years after Jesus was crucified. And listen to what he says. For what I received, I passed on to you. Verse 3. What I received, I passed on to you as being of first importance. The Greek word there means of utmost importance. This is the most important thing. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, but some have fallen asleep. What Paul is saying there is, there's 500 people that saw him at the same time. Most of these people are still living. You can check it out. This is not some secret kind of a thing. It's not some esoteric deal that I made up. You can go check it out. And I'll name you some names you can write to if you're really wondering about it. You got Peter, you got the twelve, you got James, who was incidentally the brother of Jesus. He came to be a believer because of the resurrection. He wasn't a believer before that. In the Gospels, he's not a believer. He thinks that his brother's crazy. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one who was abnormally born. And then down in verse 19. Paul sums up what this all means. He says, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. We are miserable. If this isn't true, folks, life is really the pits. We'll talk about that a little bit more later on. Let me pray. Father, I just pray, God, that you'd give me clarity and give our ears clarity, Lord, as I'm really going to be addressing the mind here, Lord, the intellect, 
God, you don't call us to be irrational. You don't call us to be stupid. You don't call us to base our whole life on an emotion, on a whim, on a feeling. You say, come let us reason in your word. And so, Lord, this morning, I want to speak reasonably to each one of us, believer and unbeliever. And I pray, God, only this, Lord, that you would help the words go forth with power and clear away the cobwebs of our mind. Lord, if there are things in our life which cause us to resist hearing this, I pray, Lord, that you and your Holy Spirit would be working to clear them out so, Lord, that your truth can go forth and be known and be received. And I pray, Lord, for those who are here this morning who don't know you, who aren't married to you, I pray, God, with all my heart, that before this morning's over, they will be. In your name I pray. Amen. Five reasons, basic reasons, why I believe the resurrection is among the most, if not the most, confirmed event in all of ancient history. By ancient history, I'm referring to uh, the first century A.D. and everything before. Although ancient history really starts with about 17th century and everything before. But five reasons. Number one. The number of witnesses that are there and their proximity to the event that they're talking about. We don't, this is point number one, the number of witnesses and the proximity of the event they're talking about. You can take notes if you want to, you're allowed to. I'm a professor. I'm kind of wearing a professor hat this morning. So take notes or you're flunk. You're going to flunk this church service. We, in looking at history, we never see an event as it took place. That's why it's history. You can't replicate history. The only way we know that anything historically ever ever takes place is that someone wrote about it. Or we have some kind of archaeological artifact of it happening. Usually in history, we have one or two sources of an event. And very frequently, those sources are quite far removed from the event they're talking about. Let me give you some for instances. Nobody in their right mind doubts that Socrates lived. Nobody in their right mind doubts that we know for certain what Socrates taught, some of the details about his life, how he died, drinking hemlock. No one doubts that, but almost all of our information about Socrates depends on one source, and that is Plato, a disciple of his. And most of what Plato wrote about Socrates, he wrote 20 to 30 years after Socrates lived. But that, by historical standards, is very, very good. We've got one source here, no reason to think he was lying, making things up, no reason to think he got his information wrong. He's in a position to know, a far better position than we are, so we trust him. Plato, one source, and we write volumes about the philosophy of Socrates, but it's all based on one source. That's what historians customarily do. A great deal of what we believe we know about the first century, especially first century Judaism and the relationship with the Romans, is based on one source, Josephus. Most of what Josephus wrote about occurred 20 to 50 years before he wrote. No historian seriously doubts, at least systematically doubts, that Josephus was giving accurate history because he's got no motive to lie. Some of his writings is a little bit prejudiced in favor of the Romans and whatnot, so you take that into consideration. But by and large, we trust Josephus, and if we didn't trust Josephus, we'd have to take out of our history books a great deal of what's there concerning the first century and Jewish relationships with Rome. Alexander the Great. I don't know any historian that denies that there was a man named Alexander the Great. I don't know any historian that denies that we can know a great deal about Alexander the Great, his life, his conquest, probably the greatest military mind and one of the sickest minds in all of the world. He wanted to conquer the entire world. We know a lot about Alexander the Great. We've got dissertation upon dissertation upon dissertation concerning Alexander the Great. 
But about 85% of what we think we know about Alexander the Great comes from one source, a biographer named Arian, who was writing four centuries after Alexander the Great lived. But by historical standards, that's not bad. The man writes with confidence. He gives the impression that he knows what he's talking about. He's got no reason to make this up. So we trust that he was a rational guy and he knew knew how to use his sources and he evaluated his sources. So historians have a lot to say about Alexander the Great in their history books, but most of it's based on one source. Now let's consider what is the historical evidence for the person of Jesus Christ. We don't have one source. We've got at least five. And they're not writing... 400 years after the event. Though even if they were, that shouldn't dismiss what they're saying because we use testimonies that late in other areas and we assume that they're reliable. But these authors are all writing 15 to 20 on the outside 40 or 50 years after the event. Paul, first of all, we have Paul. This letter is written 15 to 20 years after the event. He tells us in this passage that he received what he's given to the Corinthians. In fact, he's telling the Corinthians that he, he, they had already gotten this information. So Paul's not giving them something they don't already know. He's reviewing for them something they already know. He's saying, I received it, now I pass it on for you. The, the words he uses there in the Greek are technical rabbinic words that have to do with the passing on of sacred tradition. And for the Jews, it was close to blasphemy to tamper with sacred tradition. Paul then is giving us a tradition in 1 Corinthians 15 that goes back years perhaps to the event itself. When did Paul receive this information? Well, we know that he met with the disciples for 15 days shortly after his conversion, which was three years after the event. So here we have some testimony that goes back to within three years of the event itself. Historically speaking, that is unprecedented. Paul assumes that these people know about this, that they've had to make a decision regarding it, He names names, he cites these 500 witnesses, he invites his audience to go check out, to cross-check what he's saying from a historical point of view, from a strictly historical point of view. Pretending this is not in the Bible. This is almost unprecedented in terms of having a reliable witness. A witness this close to the event, who's got no motive to lie, who invites his audience to cross-check what he's saying. It's astounding. And what he's saying is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. But the evidence just starts there. We also have the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There is no reason to doubt the traditional authorship of those Gospels, though liberal scholars try over and over again. But no one in the ancient world, and I'm talking about those who would be in a position to know, ever doubted that. But even the liberal scholars don't date these Gospels more than 50 years after the event, which by historical standards is incredible, I would date them much earlier, about 20 to 30 years after the event. In the ancient world, no one, hardly anyone ever signed their writings. It was considered prideful, and, and no one dated their writings, so it's hard to date ancient documents. But what historians do is they look for internal evidence to tell them when they uh, uh, were written. And I can't go into a lot of this and bore you with a lot of the details, but there's a, a lot of internal evidence that suggests that the Gospels represent thinking and beliefs no later than one generation removed from the event of of, uh, the crucifixion. Let me give you one piece of evidence. Just one piece of evidence. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verse 21, Mark says very incidentally, he says, that Simon helped Jesus carry the cross when, when Jesus was being crucified. 
And then he says this, Simon is the father of Alexander and Rufus. And then he goes on. You normally wouldn't notice that. think kind of an irrelevant little piece there. But from a historical point of view, it's powerful precisely because it's irrelevant. Because it tells us that Mark, or the author of Mark, is assuming that his audience knows Alexander and Rufus. Sounds like a dog. <laughs> Rufus. But Alexander, in fact, we have an ossuary, which is a collection of bones that was discovered about a couple decades ago uh, in Jerusalem. And it's, uh, the, the, the name on the thing is Ruf, or Alexander, the son of Simon. Which makes you wonder if that's not the Simon and the Alexander that uh, Mark's talking about. That's, a, that's beside the point. The thing here is this. Mark, it tells you that Mark is writing at a time when his audience knows the son of the guy who carried the cross. And that means whenever you date the Gospel of Mark, it can't be more than 20 or 30 years after the event. We're still dealing with the first generation after the whole thing. But even if you go with the liberal scholars and date it in 80 AD or whatever, you're still talking within 50 years. And compared to what we got with Socrates, compared to what we got with Alexander the Great, compared to what we have with Josephus, that is by historical standards very, very good. You got five authors writing independently of this event within 50 years of the event, and that is very, very good evidence. It's also very clear that these five authors are independent of one another. You put, you put together these five accounts of the resurrection, and you'll see that whatever else you can say about them, they clearly were not sitting together in some room saying, we've got to come up with a story, we've got to get our facts straight, we've got to sell this story to the world. These are five independent authors. They differ on all the details. In fact, some skeptics say, well, look at these. These gospel accounts on the resurrection, they contradict one another. And therefore, they can't be believed. They do disagree, or at least they differ on, on where they say the angels appeared and how many angels there were and how many women there were that visited the tomb and exactly when they visited the tomb or whatever. But that is, listen now, that is the kind of differences that you expect to find whenever you're dealing with five eyewitnesses that, that are reflecting by memory the account 30 or 40 years after the event. They disagree on the details. There's ways of explaining the differences. But here's the thing. If you've got five people within 20 to 50 years making up a story, you've got no way to explain what they have in common. Let me put it this way. Some of you have seen Oliver Stone's movie on JFK. Have you read about JFK? And then you know that there are hundreds and hundreds of accounts of what happened to John F. Kennedy the day he was assassinated in 1962. And no two of those accounts... I completely agree. Some think their shot was in the, the bush, and others think, no, it came from overhead. One heard three shots, one heard four shots, one heard two shots. One saw a person with an umbrella over in that corner. Another person said, no, the umbrella was in that corner, or what have you. There's all these different disagreements, and we've got the thing on video. Now, here's the point. No one concludes from these disagreements that, therefore, we can't believe that John F. Kennedy was assassinated. If John F. Kennedy wasn't assassinated, you wouldn't have all these, these different accounts to disagree with one another. Why then do you draw the conclusion that because these five accounts disagree with one another on some details, that therefore the resurrection didn't take place? What's amazing is what they have in common, and what they have in common is this. They say that the, the tomb was empty. Jesus Christ was crucified. He was put in the tomb of jo Joseph of Arimathea. On Sunday morning, the tomb was empty. The women went there. They saw it there. They saw the angels. They ran and told the disciples. The disciples came. And then Jesus, at different places and different times, met the disciples. He appeared to the disciples once to over 500 brothers at one time. Now, here's the question you've got to ask yourself. 
If these five accounts, writing independently of one another in close proximity to the event, if they're not writing about this because the event actually happened, what is your explanation for why they're writing it? You follow me on this? If this evidence is not good enough for you, then you ought to, out of integrity and honesty and consistency, say that we don't know about any event in the ancient world, because I challenge you to find me any one event where you have got five authors this close to the event with this kind of witness testimony, with this kind of detail, writing about something. It doesn't exist. You throw out the resurrection as a historical event. You play the, the agnostic and say, well, we really don't know what happened. We're relying on secondhand testimony. And if you're going to do that consistently, you've got to throw away everything we know about the ancient world. But if you're unwilling to throw away everything that you believe about the ancient world, then on what basis can you possibly throw out the resurrection of Jesus Christ? It is, I submit to you, the best attested event that we have in ancient times. I don't think I'd believe it if it wasn't for that, but there it is. A second, second factor about these documents that lead me to believe that they're telling the truth is this. In any court of law, if you're going to incriminate a, incriminate a witness, you've got to establish a motive. You've got to establish a motive. If I want to find out whether uh, Dave Churchill really killed uh, his wife last night, I've got to establish a motive. I don't want to give you any ideas, Dave. So it is when you're dealing with history. If you're going to say, as John Dominic Cross and, and Burton Mack and these others say, if you're going to say that these events are forgeries, that these events are frauds, that they're making up the story, John Dominic Cross and thinks that Paul was just making up a story here. He's just, he was trying to boast that he had seen the Lord and all this other kind of stuff. But if you're going to say that, you've got to establish a motive. Especially if, if the people are going to get killed for what they're saying. What is the motive here? It's not like these people, once they came up with this story, drove around in Cadillacs and wore Rolex watches the rest of their life. They didn't live in mansions. They didn't have it well. What happened to these people is this. Under the persecution of Nero, Nero was the most sick emperor Rome ever had. Well, Diocletian later on comes close. But Nero was really a sicko he was so barbaric in his persecution of the Christians in 62 A.D., okay? This is only 30 years after the event. He was so barbaric that even some of the secular Roman historians like Tacitus felt sorry for the Christians. They wrote about it. These poor, pathetic, mythological believers. They're, they're getting fed to lions. Mothers are being made to watch their children get eaten up by lions. They're being burned at the stake. But not just burned at the stake. Burned at the stake slowly. They're being crucified upside down. They're having their skin filleted off them. And on and on and on and on and on. Now if you're going to say that these gospel authors, these disciples made this stuff up, you've got to answer this question. Why on earth would they then die for the thing? Why on earth would they be willing to sacrifice their kids, their wives, their families, their lives, and all that they have, undergo the kind of persecution, undergo the kind of terror and nightmarish experiences they went through? If they're not telling the truth, why would they do that? At the very least, you've got to say that however you explain these things, these people really believe what they were saying. People don't just make up a lie like this and die for it like this. They really were convinced. But now you've got to ask this very, very important question. It is the most important question you can possibly ask. It is the question that I have yet to find a scholar who doubts the resurrection and the person of Jesus Christ. They never can answer this question. And the question is this. If, if it wasn't the life and the teachings and the miracles and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that motivated these people to preach the gospel and go to the grave, then what was it? 
If Jesus didn't do the miracles that these gospel authors say he did, then what caused the disciples to think and believe and preach that he did the miracles to the point where they're willing to die for it and allow their children to die for it? If Jesus didn't claim to be the Son of God, then what explains the reality that these people thought he was the Son of God? They were eyewitnesses of the thing. They were there to know, and they believed it to the point where they were willing to die for it. If Jesus Christ didn't claim to be the Son of God and didn't prove it with his miracles, then what explains their belief that he did the miracles and was the Son of God? And if Jesus Christ didn't die on the cross and didn't rise from the dead, and if the tomb wasn't empty, and if Jesus didn't appear to the disciples at different times and change their lives, then somebody tell me, what on earth convinced these disciples? We've got their names here. We've got over 500 that saw them at one time. What convinced them that, in fact, the tomb was empty, that, in fact, he did appear to them, that, in fact, their lives were changed to the point where they were willing to die for it, get kicked out of the synagogue, suffer persecution the rest of their life? They didn't benefit a thing from that. They've got no motive to make the thing up, no motive to fabricate, every reason to check this stuff out with, 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 with all that's within them to make sure that it's true, and yet we find them going to the grave for it. I submit to you that there is no other explanation for the disciples' faith and for their conviction except for the explanation they themselves give. Jesus Christ was the Lord of God all. He died on the cross for our sins. He was buried. He rose again from the third day, on the third day. He appeared to all of us and to others. If that's not true, then what explains their conviction that it is true? A third point is this. Even if the disciples had wanted to lie, I submit to you that they, wouldn't, they weren't in a position where they could have lied. The environment in which the gospel was preached prohibited them making up a story. Okay, let me give an analogy here. If today in the newspaper all of a sudden it was recorded that members of the Unification Church, Moonies, they're called, that uh, they're now saying that Sung Young Moon was going throughout the streets of New York City and healing blind people and healing lepers and, and raising the dead. And they were saying that uh, he was claiming to be the Messiah. And they said that he died in the tomb of his buried next to John F. Kennedy. And that there were many witnesses to his being, uh, you know, dying in the tomb of John F. Kennedy, or right next to him. And uh, hopefully not right in his casket. But, uh, and, and then he rose from the dead, and people saw him, various people, whatever. I would be on the phone tomorrow morning writing letters, maybe traveling to New York to check the whole thing out. Because if they're telling the truth, I'm in the wrong. If they're telling the truth, I'm believing the wrong thing, you're believing the wrong thing. If Sun Young Moon is the Messiah, we've been all off boat. And I've got a lot, of, a lot at stake. I'm basing my life on this being true. So I'm going to check it out, and I will do everything I can to refute this. Especially if I see it growing really fast, people are believing all this stuff. I'm going to go out of my way to try to refute this thing if I can. That is exactly the position that the Jewish leaders were in on Easter morning. If, if, if Jesus Christ is the Messiah, and if he rose from the dead, that means they are in the wrong, and they don't want to be in the wrong. They've got their life staked on being in the right. They've got a lot of people, a lot of position there. They see Christianity as being a little cult, a little sect, a little bunch of wackos who are believing that this man was God and whatnot. And they want to suppress it. They want to get rid of it. That's why they persecute the whole thing. If they could have refuted this, they would have refuted this. But if the disciples were making the whole thing up, they could have easily refuted this. It wasn't like these disciples were preaching about something that happened far, far away and long, long ago, somewhere in the distant past, and never, never land. Once upon a time, there was this person. No, 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 it doesn't go like that. Read Acts chapter 2. Peter stands up and says, You people, you saw Jesus Christ. The stuff he did, he did it by the power of God. 
and then you crucified him. How do I get a popular audience? You, know? you guys crucified him, Acts chapter 2. And David, we all believe in David, but David's tomb is still with us. But I'll tell you something. Jesus was crucified at Golgotha, and the tomb is empty. Golgotha is about a 10-minute walk outside of Jerusalem, 15 minutes max. He's saying, you guys don't believe it? Go check it out. This isn't some kind of once upon a time, far, far away, long, long ago kind of a sermon. Peter is preaching to people that are not going to be inclined to believe him, to people that have a heavy stake in disproving him, and he's telling, talking about people and places and times that are in their vicinity. Pilate, you know Pilate. Well, he's the one who condemned him. Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. That's like the Supreme Court in the first century. It, Mark mentions Joseph of Arimathea. You don't just make up a name like that. Uh, you know, and throw it out there. Yeah, well, uh, Jesus was buried in the tomb of uh, uh, Joseph of Arimathea. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, he asked to be... That, that would be the easiest thing to disprove, to show as a fraud, to just refute. There you go. What's amazing is we... Among all the, the, the things that, that we find in opposition to Christianity... No one argues that the tomb wasn't empty. No one questions the disciples' sincerity. There, there, there are people around there at the time who say that it's all of the devil, that's, a, that's an illusion of the devil, that the devil appeared or whatever. But the, the, the point of the thing is this. If this was a forgery, if this was a lie, first of all, you have no reason to think it's a lie. You have no reason to think it's a forgery. They've got nothing to gain. They've got everything to lose by preaching what they're going to preach. But if you're going to say it's a lie, you've got to explain how it is that it couldn't be exposed as that. You saw Paul right here just inviting people to cross-check his testimony, cross-check his references, but no one exposes this as being a lie. The environment of the gospel, to me, proves this authenticity. A fourth point. Okay, so, so far we've got... Well, I can't review the points, but the fourth point. Too much to remember. To remember. Fourth point. And this is big. You've got the nature of the documents that we're talking about. The nature of the documents that we're talking about. The number and proximity, number one. No motive to lie, number two. No circumstances to lie in, number three. And the nature of the documents, number four. Here's what I mean by that. There's a great scholar. He was the greatest Homer scholar, scholar on Homer that ever lived. Not Homer Simpson, but Homer the Greek Iliad and the Odyssey. <laughs> Don't! This guy spent his life studying ancient Roman history, ancient Roman writings. Towards the end of his life, he gave a speech to Tübingen Seminary, University in Germany, which is one of the most liberal seminaries in the world. And this great scholar, I, I, I've got a copy of his speech that he gave, he says this, I spent my life examining ancient histories. I have never come across... Documents that have the sort of vividness, experiential vividness, he says, that historians look for as a telltale sign of truth. I've never come across documents that have as much experiential vividness as the Gospels. What he's saying is that if these don't constitute history, nothing in the ancient world does. The Gospels, the texture of the Gospels, C.S. Lewis did the same thing. The great Oxford um, uh, mythologist, he says, I spent my life studying myth. And if there's one thing I know about the Gospels, it's this. These ain't myth. They're not myth. There is a vividness to the Gospels, details, irrelevant details that historians look for when they're trying to decide whether to trust a document or not. They look for certain sorts of, of, of features, and the Gospels exhibit those features, especially in the resurrection accounts. 
there's a lot of detail that you wouldn't expect to be there if these things are being made up. When a person gives an eyewitness report, they, they, they usually just kind of run a video in their mind and they include a lot of stuff that you don't need to include to get the point across, but the fact that they include it is a sign that they're telling the truth. Let me read you John chapter 20. Very interesting. This is a resurrection account. Nowhere do you find this more than in the resurrection accounts. Listen to this now. And tell me if you think this could be made up. It's got all the, the, the marks of truth. Early on the first day of the week, what time was it? Well, it was the first day of the week. Well, it was still dark. Was it light? No, it was still dark. Who cares? John does. Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. Who? A prostitute. An ex-prostitute. Not the kind of lady you just introduce into your scenario if you're going to try to sell a story. Mary Magdalene went to the tomb, and she saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. Now, that's interesting. John, if you really study the Gospels close, you'll find that John has a problem with pride. He does. And, and uh, um, he's the one who wants to sit next to Jesus on the throne, you know, and, and, and wants to be in the kingdom right on his right hand. And he's the one who calls down fire, Jesus, send down thunder and let's blow all these suckers up, you know. And Jesus says, snob it. Well, John, the Lord, when he inspired the Gospel of John, left that part in there, I think, to give it a ring of authenticity. Here John is telling the story and he doesn't come out and say, I'm the one that Jesus loved, but everyone knows who he's talking about. The disciple whom Jesus loved. In contrast to Peter, I guess. That loser over there. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Now, if you're making the thing up, you'd want to say, he's risen, he's risen, hallelujah! Oh, we were right all along. But here, Mary comes and she goes, oh, we don't know where he's gone. It's like, Mary, weren't you listening when Jesus was telling you that this was going to happen? This is not what you'd expect, but the fact that it's there, it has the ring of truth to it. Who would make that kind of thing up? But now it gets better. Verse 3, so Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved, started running for the tomb. Verse 4, both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, I'm sure your salvation depends on knowing who was faster, John or Peter. And I got a picture of Peter. You know, he's this fisherman, kind of burly type. You know, I can just see him, you know, chugging along. But here's John writing his gospel, going, na 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 But if you're remembering the stuff, you think, yeah, I got there first. Okay, I remember that. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. That's interesting. We know from archaeology, just recent archaeology, that rich, wealthy tombs, the kind of tomb that a member of the Sanhedrin would have, were, were a, 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 a crossalia tombs, they were called. They were the, these tombs that you had to crawl into because you could secure them easier, so you had to bend over and, and, and step into these, these kind of tombs. That's the kind of tomb Jesus was buried in. If you go to Israel, there's, there's, there's two tombs that claim to be the real tomb that Jesus was buried in. Only one of them do you have to crawl into. It may not be the real tomb, it might be, but I know for sure that the one that you can walk into standing straight up isn't, because John had to bend over to get into it. Oh, I'm just so full of trivia this morning. Okay. But that's because John is. He bent over. What an interesting detail. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, <laughs> he arrived and went in the tomb. Now that's like Peter. Peter always acts first, think later. So Peter arrived, uh, he, he gasped me for her probably. He goes in the tomb. He saw the strips of linen there. 
as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Man, that is... Who cares how Jesus folded his clothes? Well, his mother, but who else? You know. <laughs> Never mind. I was just thinking of some... Never mind. It's like, uh, okay, I gotta say it, but you know, it's like your mother's always saying, Did you change your shorts? You never ever need a car wreck? <laughs> you never know, you might get resurrected today. Make sure that you're clean. Right. <laughs> How to combine the, the sacred and the mundane in, in a <laughs> Hey, it was John's fault. So he looks in. He, now look at this. This is weird. This is weird stuff. There's a pile of clothing there. The stuff that Jesus was wrapped in, it's all there on the slab. It's there. It's just laying there. But over in the corner, the, the turban that was wrapped around his head is folded up nice and neat. Now that's weird. Who would make up that kind of thing? Why would Jesus, being resurrected, fold the top, the, the thing around his head and not the other stuff? Why would he put it in a different place? And what was Jesus wearing, by golly, when he got out of the tomb? It raises some interesting questions. Apparently when you're resurrected, your clothes don't go with you. So don't invest too much in them. But the point here is that this is the kind of detail. A historian looks at this, and it sounds like it's coming from an eyewitness. This is the kind of thing that a person who was there would remember, but a person who wasn't there would never think of making up. Where am I? Oh, finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first. Folks, that's the third time you got it. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first, the one whom Jesus loved, na 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 He went inside, he saw, and he believed. doesn't say Peter believed, but John believed. Here's the point, folks. The Gospels are full of this kind of detail, a kind of nitty-gritty stuff, the kind of vividness that Wolfgang uh, Shadowvolt says was the telltale characteristic of an eyewitness report, and the Gospel accounts are full of this kind of stuff. If this doesn't count as reliable history, show me an ancient document that does. If you're going to throw this out as reliable history, written this close in proximity to the event, written with four other cooperating witnesses, then you've got to write off the whole of world history. Or you've got to admit that this is, has got to be admissible as telltale evidence. Not only that, let me say one other thing about, about the nature of the Gospels. It's not just that they give irrelevant detail, but they even give detail that counts against them. For example, in the ancient Jewish world, a woman was not allowed to testify in court. If she saw a murder, the murderer went free. She couldn't testify in court. Unless there was a cooperating man that says, yeah, I saw it as well, then her testimony was allowed in court. Because the ancient Jews believed that women were incurable liars. They didn't trust them. They didn't believe them. It was the most sexist thing you can think of. But here's the thing. If you're a Jew in the first century writing a gospel for Jews, you are not going to make up. If you're making up a story here, you are not going to make women to be the first ones who find the tomb. You're certainly not going to make a prostitute the first one who finds the tomb. That's not going to help sell your story, folks. This is why Paul, incidentally, in 1 Corinthians 15, he doesn't mention women. That's what you would expect from a Jewish man in the first century. He doesn't even bother to mention the women because, you know, who would believe that anyways? The fact that the women are found in the Gospels, the fact that they were the first ones to find the tomb, the fact that they are portrayed as the heroes when all the men are scared stiff in the upper room, the fact that they're portrayed in that light, the fact that the testimony, the whole thing, hangs upon women, there's no way to account for that, no way to explain that, except by saying that the Gospel authors recorded like that because that's the way it was. Who, if, if you were trying to 
sell the story that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, that He was God incarnate, that He died for our sins and rose from the dead, would you put this in the mouth of Jesus on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What motive could anyone have for having Jesus say that on the cross? Here's, he, wait a minute, he, he is God. This, he's saying, God, why have you forsaken me? That doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't make sense. And the fact that the authors include that it raises a really, I think, profound theological point. But the fact that they included that, their only motive could have been that that's the way it happened and these people are telling the truth. The Gospel documents, as well as the Epistle of Paul, gives us every reason to believe that, in fact, what they're saying is true. There is no alternative explanation. The historical evidence for this event is as good, if not better, in fact, far better, than what we have for most other, in fact, all other ancient historical events. It gives us every reason in the world to, to, to believe it. There's a final point why I believe it's all true, and I'll just share it briefly, and it's this. Everything in my heart says that something like this has got to be true. And I think your heart is doing the same thing. We know in our heart of hearts, if you're honest with yourself, that this life cannot be all there is. If this life ends at all, if, 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 if we end up six feet below the ground, and that's all there is to it, then life as we know it is utterly, utterly vacuous. It's meaningless. It's empty. It's positively absurd. It's got no point, no rhyme, no reason. After you're dead, it doesn't make a better difference when you live, whether you lived or not, how you lived. The maggots that get your body don't give a rip whether you were a Mother Teresa or an Adolf Hitler. It all comes to nothing. And all the dreams, all the aspirations you ever, ever had, all the things that you believe in, all the things you strive for, all the things that civilization ever strived for, it all ends up as a big black hole, meaningless, absurd, going nowhere. And what's really crazy is that in the depths of our heart, we long for nothing more than meaning. And the idea that life is meaningless, it means that we are a cruel joke. Nature somehow produced beings that long for something that could never, ever, ever, ever exist. It's like, it's like fish evolving in the Sahara Desert, gasping for water when there's been no water ever that existed, ever shall exist. Here we are beings that want to have a meaning, want to have a purpose. If death ends at all, that's just utterly absurd. We are, life is, like, like, like Shakespeare said in Macbeth, it's a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying absolutely nothing. Your heart says that there must be something that answers to this longing in your heart. We long for air, and there's air. We long for water, and there's water. We've got sex drives, and there's sex. Nature doesn't produce beings that long for things that it can't give. We long for meaning. We long for purpose. We long for eternal life. And the Christian witness is this. The reason you long for that is because you were meant for it. You were meant to have more meaning, and more love, and more power, and more joy, and more peace than you can possibly imagine this morning. And it's found right here in the person of Jesus Christ. He rose from the dead. Amen. Amen. Praise God. He died on the cross to get us perfectly compatible with an all-holy God. He rose from the dead to say, I've conquered the enemy. I've conquered Satan. I've conquered the grave. I've conquered your sin. There's no more issue. Believe in me and it's a done deal. This morning I want to end just by doing this. There are some here this morning for whom that's not a done deal. The Bible says that to enter into that eternal life, to be, to be ready for the kingdom that God is now preparing and that's going to come about before too long, I really believe. But to be ready for that, you need to be married to Jesus Christ. And all that entails is this, just saying, the Bible says if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. 
It's a matter of saying, Lord, I believe that the sacrifice that Jesus gave on the cross was for me. I want to be saved. I want to be washed. I want to be clean. I believe it is true. It doesn't mean that you're as certain as all get out. It doesn't mean that your life is perfect. It doesn't have anything to do with your life. It has to do with the Holy Spirit drawing on your heart right now and wanting you to say yes to God.